It's time for this week's edition of the Virtual Bible Study. The Virtual Bible Study is a live, internet-only, call-in program dedicated to the honest study and discussion of God's Word. Do you have a question about something in the Bible? Or are you simply interested in learning more about the Scriptures? If so, we hope you'll stay tuned tonight as we look into the pages of God's Word. The Virtual Bible Study is brought to you this time each week by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. You can participate in the discussion tonight by calling 93 Three one three eight one four five six seven, or by emailing your questions or comments from collegeview.com. We hope you'll take out your Bibles and study along with us as we begin an exciting study of God's Word on this edition of the Virtual Bible Study. And we welcome you to the Virtual Bible Study for Thursday, January first, two thousand and fifteen. Welcome to the new year and to the Virtual Bible Study. We're glad you joined us. My name is Jacob Gwynn. My father, Greg Gwynn, is here. Hello, Dad. Jacob, great to be with you tonight on the New Year's Day and the first uh, episode of the Virtual Bible Study for 2015. It is, and we're glad to be here. And uh, a new look tonight. Slightly different look. Uh, we'd be interested to get some feedback from our listeners. Uh, we, we sort of rearranged the Virtual Bible Study room, and uh, we were we always talking to each other, so we figure we might as well be facing each other. And so we've changed our setup, and we're going to maybe make a few more alterations. And so you can give us a heads up. Jeff uh, is working aboard for us tonight. It's going to make his him have a little bit more nimble fingers. He's going to have to be switching back and forth between cameras a little more. Yeah, I think we may, after we look at this tonight, we may make some more changes. But uh, we'll give it a try and see how it looks. You might tell us what you think in the chat room, if it helps anything or not. Um, there's not much you can do to help the way that we look, but uh, we'll see how it goes. Uh, you uh, have a program. Well, before we start, it is the first day of the new year, and uh, there are still, uh, depending on what time zone you're in, about four hours for you to get started on your Bible reading calendar. Well, that's right. Uh, we, we, again this year, have made our Bible reading calendar available for those who are interested in using it. Uh, and it's on our website this year. Uh, you can download it from the website, uh, the, uh, the homepage of the College View Church of Christ. Uh, one of the top things on that page is our 2015 Bible Reading Calendar. You can go there. Uh, you can get it there in a PDF form. You can download it or you can just look at it online and get and uh, pull it up every day and get your Bible readings. Uh, we can send you by email a PDF or a Word document okay. Or we can send you in the snail mail a printed copy of the virtual Bible study. I mean, of the uh, daily Bible reading. Yep. If you'll send us an email with your uh, snail mail address, uh, we'll get that in the mail to you right away. You'll be a few days late getting it uh, to get started, but uh, not too bad. And it's uh, you, it's it's a good time to get started doing that. And uh, as you've said before, it doesn't take a lot of time, uh, but definitely worthwhile. So if you're not uh, don't have a Bible reading plan. Get that calendar, download it from our website, get started on it tonight. And uh, if you don't get started on it tonight, you can catch up. Uh, you'll, you won't be that far behind. So we'll, you ought to check that out on our website, thevirtualbiblestudy.com. All right, for tonight, a program uh, that is going to be very concerning. Uh, some outrageous claims made about the Bible tonight. And uh, where'd you find this article? This article is in the current edition of Newsweek magazine, but I was given a heads up about it by our friend Chris in the UK. He was the first one to point oh, it out okay. to me, but others have as well. Uh, and so I got online. I don't take Newsweek magazine. I don't think very many people at all take Newsweek magazine. If I took anymore. it, I'd cancel it after that. that uh, well, I I get the idea that, that a lot of people are saying this is sort of a hit piece on the Bible and anybody who believes in it. Uh, but I, I, I sort of wonder if because their circulation is so poor and their business is so failing, I wonder if they're doing something like this just to grab attention, maybe make a splash, see if they can get some reaction out of people. Because it certainly was sort of an inflammatory way to address the subject of the Bible and the mm-hmm. accuracy of the Bible. In fact, I think, Jeff, we've got a, a, a picture of the cover of Newsweek magazine that we can put on the screen. Okay. And, and it says... The Bible so misunderstood, it's a sin. In other words, the Bible is just completely misunderstood. People don't don't you know. And and it, we're going to look at some quotes. It's a long, pretty long article. We're not going to read it all, uh, but we're going to take some excerpts from it. And you get the idea that the guy's just really biased. And and I think pretty seriously, 
uninformed about the things he's writing about. Brendan in uh, Forest Grove, Oregon, says uh, this issue is the first one since they've been back in print after new ownership. So maybe it was uh, that sort of that shock factor they were looking for. Yeah, I think it. I got that idea. I mean, how would you know? But I mean, it, it's certainly suspicious. <clears throat> they certainly didn't do their homework. They didn't spend a lot of money on uh, on this article. Uh, appears, but anyhow. So we sent out six questions earlier today to our update list, and we always remind you you can get on our update list by sending us an email to questions at collegeu.com. Just say add me to the list. People are doing that. We keep uh, getting more and more requests to be on our mailing list. We're glad for that. And if you're on our mailing list, you uh, sometime during the day on Thursday, you'll get an update about what our topic is going to be and and some questions for consideration and feedback. So to our update list today, we sent out some questions, and uh, it all has to do with the Bible, the reliability of the Bible. Question one is just sort of a general question. Why do you think there's so much obvious bias as expressed in this article against the Bible? Number two, what are some of the basic facts that all Christians should know in response to claims that the manuscript evidence for the Bible is lacking or flawed? Number three, how would you respond to the claim that translators have had simply to guess at what the original language is meant? Number four, how was the canon of Scripture established? Specifically, what part did Constantine and the various church councils have in making these determinations? When we talk about the canon of Scripture, we're talking about what books are included in our Bibles. Number five, are there notable contradictions in the Bible? How do you explain, for instance, differences in the gospel accounts of Jesus' life? And number six, when Christians, even the majority of Christians, do things contrary to the Bible, does it reflect upon the accuracy of the Bible? Okay. Now, those questions are all based upon things that are stated in this article. All right. And so as we get to those questions, I'm going to read some some excerpts from the article. So let's start out with this first one. It's just sort of a, a an introductory sort of thing. The This article is just infected with a strong bias, a strong anti-Bible bias. It starts out here. This is the very start of the article. They waved their Bibles at passerby, screaming their condemnation of homosexuals. They fall on their knees, worshiping at the base of granite monuments to the Ten Commandments while demanding prayer in school. They appeal to God to save America from their political opponents, mostly Democrats. They gather in football stadiums by the thousands to pray for the country's salvation. They are God frauds. Cafeteria Christians who pick and choose which Bible verses they heed with less care than they they exercise in selecting side orders for lunch. They are joined by religious rationalizers, fundamentalists who, unable to find scripture supporting their biases and beliefs, twist phrases and modify translations to prove they are honoring the Bible's words. Mm-hmm. Pretty strong language. I mean, do you get the idea that this is going to be a an impartial look at the Bible? And 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 what it says and how people in, understand it doesn't sound like. I mean, Not they start, the start start bashing right from the start. Yeah. A little later in this introduction, he says. This explanation in Newsweek of the Bible's history and meaning is not intended to advance a particular theology or debate the existence of God. Rather, it's designed to shine a light on a book that has been abused by people who claim to revere it but don't read it. In the process, creating misery for others. This examination, based in large part on the work of scores of theologians and scholars, is a review of the Bible's history and a recounting of its words. Well, he claims that this is that this review is based upon the work of uh, scores of theologians and scholars, but he, he quotes almost none. Uh, throughout the course of the article, there's there's reference to just uh, two or three uh, liberal. Uh, um, yeah, professors and so forth from various uh, academic institutions, but there, there's precious little reference to scholars uh, and the theologians. Credible ones, at least. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, you ask about this bias, Aaron. In uh, I guess he's in Louisiana. Said um, he said that he references the ca- the cafeteria Christians quote uh, who pick and choose which Bible verses they heed. Aaron says, absolutely true of many religious people. A number of religious leaders even admit that when it comes to Old Testament scriptures, they pick which ones they need to observe and simply decide to ignore the rest. In your program a couple weeks ago about the female preaching intern, the preacher at the church where she interns comes right out and says, not even all parts of the New Testament should be equally weighed, and that since Paul was just a student like us, we can decide for ourselves whether he was right or not. And so I think Aaron's picking out on the fact that 
the inconsistencies of Christians in their application, their understanding of the Bible, does seem to be some of the reason for the bias here. Yeah. But that doesn't prove that the Bible is flawed. That no, no. proves that people are that's flawed. Right. That, that's that's right. the problem. Right. Uh, are, there, are there cafeteria Christians who pick and choose? Yes. Are there people who commit one sin while they condemn another sin? Yes. Uh, is, are, is there hypocrisy? Yes. But, uh, again, that doesn't mean the Bible is wrong. It's just those people who are following uh, Aaron, who made those comments, is a chemist. Yeah. I studied chemistry in college. You did, too. I was pretty bad at chemistry, especially organic chemistry. Yeah. I mean, it's like black magic. I don't yeah. understand that yeah. stuff at all. Aaron does. But does the fact that I can't understand it and I do a miserable job of applying right. it right. mean that the whole field of organic chemistry right. is bogus? Right. Obviously not. Yeah. You can't balance a chemical equation. Therefore, the whole process is flawed. Yeah. No. That's just that's just a really phony argument, yeah. Yeah. but that's yeah. the one he's making. Uh, Brendan in Oregon says... Uh, the bias is because he thinks that they know in their heart of hearts that the Bible contains the truth and that they are standing opposed to the truth. Instead of conforming to the truth, they've decided to attempt to discredit or destroy the truth. And he references Isaiah 40, verse 8. Yeah, thank you for that, Brendan. Appreciate uh, that comment. And certainly uh, there is some vested interest in them showing that the Bible is uh, inerrant or is in, in error. Uh, Chris in the UK says uh, it is what happens every Easter as to resurrection and Christmas as to the nativity. Where are uh, uh, see where in a Bart Ehrman world uh, anyhow? Um, uh, so he's saying that, that, that this is this is something that happens fairly reg- regularly. Yeah, he uh, said in another part of it, he, he sent in, I think, four different emails, so we may have trouble keeping track of all his comments, but he, he says it's because the world suppresses the truth and unrighteousness, saying that there are articles about the Koran during Ramadan or unscientific bias for evolution around Darwin's birthday. The world doesn't want to allow itself to be answerable for the actions they take or the judgments due for them. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I I would say that that's probably it. You know, if I acknowledge that the Bible is legitimately a message from God, if I if I'm forced to acknowledge God and that He has revealed Himself to us in the Bible, then I become accountable to God and to what the Bible teaches, and I don't want to do that. And so, as a countermeasure. What I do is attack legitimacy of the Bible, yeah. uh, and then, then I don't have to submit to it. All right. And this bias is a danger. You know, used to, you had to have something in print uh, for it to really have legitimacy. Something You'd had to have the, the weight of something like Newsweek behind it. But now with the Internet, you can get your message out there uh, so much more uh, effectively, and it has the air of uh, authenticity. If it's out there on the Internet, somebody publishes some kind of a piece of trash like this in uh, on, an, on a website like Newsweek, it looks authentic, uh, and I, I think that there's going to be more and more of this kind of stuff. It's got to be right. It's in Newsweek magazine. Right. It's on the internet. It's, yeah. on, it's on a respected website on the internet. Oh. We got to be careful about that, and especially with our kids. You know, you're going to put filters on your internet so they can't see pornography and things like that. But your filter is not going to catch stuff like this. You're right. going to be careful about what your kids are seeing out there on the internet and along okay. these lines. I think there's going to be more and more of it out there. I think that's right. Uh, Chris in the in the chat room uh, says that over twelve thousand people read it online as of a week ago. So I'm sure there's uh, uh, probably more uh, that have seen it since then. That doesn't seem like very many. It doesn't. Uh, that would be on the lines of maybe some of our programs. So, uh, anyway. But I do think Newsweek is uh, is a business that's been in trouble. And and Brendan <laughs> mentioned they're under new ownership. Uh, I, I think it's it sold for like a dollar. I th- when when the previous owner sold it to the current ones, and you guys in the chat room can correct me on that if I'm wrong, but it seem, seems like somewhere in my memory, I remember it, it sold for effectively nothing because there was no value. Uh, you know, print, print media in general is in big trouble, and, and Newsweek is one of those. Well, if uh, it appears that they did not get their money's worth if that's what they paid for it with this trash that's coming out. All right, let's get a break, and when we come back, uh, we want to continue talking about it. Uh, there's a lot of uh, comment in this article. You've got the quotes ready for us on the fact that the manuscripts are flawed. Yeah. And so I really think that our next question we want to deal with, what are some basic facts that all Christians ought to be able to recite when we get this criticism? Because this is not the first time this criticism has been made, obviously. This this guy is just really rehashing old arguments that have been around forever. And, yeah. and I get the idea that he's 
relatively uninformed about what he's writing about. I, yeah. I, it seems to me like he is. There were even gr- grammar error, grammatical errors in, in the article. But, but uh, I think, but I think just, uh, we, we are not textual critics. Right. But there are some basic truths that we would do well to, to, to have, you know, sort of a, a, a base to argue from when these accusations come up. They're going to come up more and more often, I'm afraid. So we'll get, get ready for that. Uh, what about the, the text? Is it accurate? Let us know what you think. 877-381-4567. Don't go anywhere. The Virtual Bible Study continues right after this. Don't touch that mouse. The Virtual Bible Study will be back right after this. I'm Larry Raspberry, a member of the College View Church of Christ, with a question for you. Do you believe in parachutes? I suppose you do. You believe they exist? But that's not what I mean. There's a difference between believing something or someone exists and putting your confidence in it or him. One who has seen a parachute knows they exist, but has never put his confidence in one. Trying one on while standing on the ground isn't faith either. Going up in a plane intending to jump out with a parachute on is not faith in the parachute either. Opening the door at the moment of truth and gazing outside to the ground is not faith either. It is only when one jumps out the door, counts to ten, and pulls the ripcord that he has actually put his faith in the parachute. Many of you believe parachutes exist, but only a few have actually put your faith in one. Many people in the world say they believe God exists, but only a few put their faith in Him for salvation by doing what He says. We'd love to help you in developing a saving faith in God. If we can be of assistance, please contact us. Send an email to questions at collegeview.com or call us at 877-381-4567. And thanks for listening to the Virtual Bible Study. Here's some quotes worth pondering. It's amazing how much work can be accomplished when no one worries who gets the credit. Having a sharp tongue may cut your own throat. If we wait for the moment when everything, absolutely everything, is perfect, we shall never begin. Life is like a coin. You can spend it any way you wish, but you can spend it only once. Man, wish I'd said that. Use your internet connection for something good. Listen to the virtual Bible study every week. Now, back to the program. Back on the program tonight, we're talking about a Newsweek article that has been published that uh, basically says you need to throw your Bible out the window. He, he says he doesn't say he doesn't believe that, but if he's if he's accurate in what he's saying, then you definitely should. Throw uh, it out interesting, the Brendan. Brendan's up on this article and this author, and in the chat room, Brendan says uh, another note is that the author's main field is finance, business, and business scandals. Well, that's not too hard to believe after reading the article. <laughs> he, he didn't act like he knew much about what no. about, about uh, no. uh, his topic of the Bible. No. So this, uh, let's let's move on. We got a lot to co- ground to cover. Uh, question two: We ask you, what are some basic facts that all Christians should know in response to claims that? The manuscript evidence for the Bible is lacking or flawed. Yeah. Um, again, this accusation is not new and it's come around before. But let me read the way this guy, this Kurt Eichenwald, that's his name, who wrote this article. Here's what he said. No television, no television preacher has ever read the Bible. Neither has any evangelical politician. Neither has the Pope. Neither have I and neither have you. At best, We've all read a bad translation, a translation of translations of translations of hand-copied copies of copies of copies of copies, and on and on, hundreds of times. Uh, about Now, basically, what he's saying there, Jacob, is we have no idea what the original text said. Right. We're reading bad we're reading translations that were made from other translations that were made from copies of copies of copies of copies of copies, and we have no idea. That's his argument. He's saying we don't have the proof of what the original text said at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, he says about 400 years passed between the writing of the first Christian manuscripts and their compilation into the New Testament. That's the same amount of time between the arrival of the pilgrims on the Mayflower and today. The first books of the Old Testament were written a thousand years before that. In other words, some 1,500 years passed between the day the first biblical author put stick to clay and when the books that would become the new testament were chosen there were no printing presses beforehand or until a thousand years later there were no vacuum sealed technologies to preserve paper for centuries dried clay broke papyrus and parchment crumbled away primitive inks faded back then writings from one era could be passed to the next only by copying them by hand 
While there were professional scribes whose lives were dedicated to this grueling work, they did not start copying the letters and testaments about Jesus' time until centuries after they were written. Prior to that, amateurs handled the work. <clears throat> These manuscripts were originally written in Corne or Common Greek, and not all the amateur copyists spoke the language or were even fully literate. Some copied the script without understanding the words. Unbelievable. Yeah. So uh, uh, well, he's basically he's saying, just, we just don't have a clue as to what the manuscripts or, or what the original text said. And the manuscript evidence is so lacking that we, we're just guessing. Well, as Chris in the U.K. put it, there's so many straw men to set a light here in the uh in the article, and uh, certainly he's thrown the straw man up on this. If he had, if he had studied his subject before he made those claims, he would have known that that that's just completely false. Everything he said there is false. I've, I've got I've got some articles on this, and and every everybody who's knowledgeable in the field says that the manuscript evidence for the Bible is overwhelming. Well, Jim in the in the chat room says papyrus and clay faded away. Does this did this guy not hear about the Dead Sea Scrolls? Yeah, yeah. Uh, we'll talk about those in, in a minute. I wanted yeah. to mention the Dead Sea Scrolls. Thanks, yeah. Jim. Uh, the quantity of New Testament manuscripts is unparalleled in ancient literature. I'm reading from another author. There are over 5,000 Greek, Greek manuscripts, about 8,000 Latin manuscripts, and another 1,000 manuscripts in other languages. In addition to this extraordinary number, there are tens of thousands of citations of New Testament passages by early church fathers. In contrast, the typical number of existing manuscript copies for any of the works of the Greek or Latin authors, such as Plato, Aristotle, Caesar, or Tacitus, ranges from 1 to 20. Yeah. We've got thousands upon thousands, and yet they're doubting that we know what the Bible is supposed to say. But they, they, they don't have any uh, arguments about what Caesar wrote or what... Plato or Aristotle, but we have almost no manuscript copies for them. Yeah, Chris in the UK uh, references the over 5,000 manuscripts. Uh, he, the next on the list of documents of antiquity, I, I believe, and he says here is Homer's Iliad. Yeah. at 643 copies, some not even in the same millennia as uh, as that when that was written. So, so we've got uh, ten times as yeah. many manuscripts of the New Testament than we have for right. the Iliad. Nobody doubts that we know what the Iliad really said. Right. But they doubt what the, but this guy's claiming we don't know what the Bible said. There's the bias. Let me read a little bit more here about the, the quality of the manuscripts. Because of the great reverence the Jewish scribes held toward the scriptures, they ex- exercised extreme care in, t- in making new copies from the Hebrew Bible. The entire scribal process was specified in metic- meticulous detail to minimize the possibility of even the slightest error. The number of letters, words, and lines were counted, and the middle letters of the Pentateuch and the Old Testament were determined. If a single mistake was discovered, the entire manuscript would be destroyed. Well, now, this is how they were being very meticulous in writing. Although it was hand copies, we admit yeah. that. But there was, a, there was an art to it. And, and, and extreme caution, because right. they referenced them as the Word of God. Right. Uh, as a result of this extreme care, the quality of the manuscripts of the Hebrew Bible surpasses all other ancient manuscripts. The 1947 discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls provided a significant check on this because these Hebrew scrolls annotate the earliest Masoretic, Masoretic Old Testament manuscripts by about a thousand years. But in spite of this time span, the number of variant readings between the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Masoretic text is quite small, and most of these are simple variations in spelling and style. Okay. While the quality of the Old Testament manuscripts is excellent, that of the New Testament is very good, considerably better than the manuscript quality of other ancient documents. Because of the thousands of New Testament manuscripts, there are many variant readings, but these variants are actually used by scholars to reconstruct the original readings by determining which variant best explains the others in any given passage, and so on it goes. Okay. Uh, the time span of the New Testament manuscripts is exceptional. The manuscripts written on papyrus came from the 2nd and 3rd centuries A.D. The John Ryland's fragment of the Gospel of John is dated A.D. 117 to 138, only a few decades after the Gospel was written. The Podmer papyri are dated from A.D. 175 to 225. The Chester Beatty papyri date from about A.D. 250. This time span for most of the New Testament is less than 2,000 years, and some books are within 100 years from the date of authorship to the date of our earliest manuscripts. This can hardly 
This can sharply be contrasted with the average gap of over a thousand years between the composition of the earliest copy of the writings of other ancient authors. Yeah, amazing. So, uh, Brendan uh, wants a link to that article, by the way. Okay, the we'll try to do that. Uh, certainly, uh, the guy has just spouted off some facts here that are not uh, that are not true, and it's well, a very well documented. What, what, what we, we would have say, in the Bible. what we would say, and I was mentioning this. What what are some of the basic facts that Christians should know? Be be able to easily explain. Mm-hmm. We're not textual critics. We've not right. invested our lives in studying, but people have. Right. Uh, and the people who have know better than what this guy has written in Newsweek. Yeah. The idea is that there are thousands upon thousands of manuscripts documenting the both the Old Testament and the New Testament. They date back very nearly to the time when the original was written. Obviously, we don't have any original, what they call autographed right. copies of the original letters by Paul or Peter or John. Right. But we have copies that date back to a very nearly that time. Mm-hmm. They are copies, but dating back very nearly to the time of the originals. I think the thing that we should be able to explain is that the textual evidence, the manuscripts of the Bible are, uh, in in comparison to any other book of antiquity, are overwhelming. And when you have that many copies, you can then compare them to to find out what is the actual truth. You know, if, 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 if you wrote a letter and I just I copied it one time and then I handed it to Jeff, he has one copy of it. That's all he has. But if you handed it to 100 people and 100 people made copies and we handed all those 100 copies to Jeff, then he can compare them and determine uh, what's accurate. Yeah, the illustration I've used before is say that one of the ladies, uh, we, we have a, a pitch-in dinner at church and somebody brings a recipe and all the ladies are raving about this recipe. Mm-hmm. And so the gal who had the original, uh, she she made three copies of the original and handed them out to people who asked her for it. Then she lost her original copy. Right. Well, when they compared the three that were out there, one of them said one cup of sugar. The second one said one cup of sugar. The third one said a hundred cups of sugar. Yeah. Would it be hard to determine, although we don't have the original anymore, with just three copies, would it be hard to determine where the error was? Yeah. It'd be easy with yeah. just three copies, yeah. and so, so since we have thousands of copies of the Bible, right? It, it, there are variant readings. Some some differ. I'm going to reference here some of the types of errors. They're very insignificant. They don't they don't affect crucial truths of the Bible at all. Uh, the Bible is extremely accurate to the original, but it's easy when we find one that's variant. It's easy to. To, to identify it and show where, where it's wrong. Now, the Dead Sea Scrolls were brought up in the chat room. How do that? How do those uh, work into the equation here? Uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, I had something here I was going to read about the Dead Sea. Scrolls. Oh, did I jump if ahead? I, if I jumped ahead, no, we'll catch you. No, up. no, not necessarily. I mean, if, if I can, if I can find it, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in 1947. And what was interesting about the Dead Sea Scrolls is that they. Uh, here we go. In 1947, a young Bedouin goat herdsman found some strange clay jars in caves near the valley of the Dead Sea. In the jars were some leather scrolls. The discovery of these Dead Sea scrolls at Qumran has been hailed as the outstanding archaeological discovery of the 20th century. The scrolls have revealed that a commune of monastic farmers flourished in the valley from 150 B.C. to about 70 A.D., uh, it is believed that when they saw the Romans invade the land, they put their cherished leather scrolls in jars and hid them in the caves on the cliffs northwest of the Dead Sea. Okay. The Dead Sea Scrolls include a complete copy of the book of Isaiah, a fragmented copy of Isaiah containing much of Isaiah 38 and following, fragments of almost every book in the Old Testament. The majority of the fragments are from Isaiah and the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The books of Samuel in a tattered copy were also found in also, two complete chapters of the book of Habakkuk. Uh, in addition, there were a number of non-biblical scrolls uh, related to the commune. Mm. Now, these materials are dated to around 100 B.C. But what's interesting is before they were discovered, the oldest manuscripts of the Old Testament dated to about 900 A.D. Whoa. So what you have then is you can take those that they were using – the reason why they the reason why they, there weren't many in between there is because 
the the scribes who copied those things revered revered them as the word of God. And so when a copy became worn, tattered, dirty, they 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 buried them out of respect. They didn't preserve them; they buried them, mm-hmm. and so they were lost. And so only current, clean copies were being used. So here you got some copies that were made around 900 A.D. Suddenly you have the ability to compare those to to manuscripts that are a thousand years older. Wow! And so. If guys like this critic who wrote in Newsweek were, were correct, they wouldn't be, be anything alike. They wouldn't be anything alike. Because you just had these uh, kindergarten be, kids be, with be like crayons. Two, be like two different, completely yeah. different books. But yeah. what they found out when they made that comparison is they were almost identical. Mm. That over a thousand years of hand copying, there almost no variation had been entered into the text. Unbelievable. Which proves, again, the accuracy of the It's Bible. been preserved. And right. We have a yeah. good window there with yeah. the Dead Sea Scrolls. Yeah. Excellent. All right. We need to get a break. When we get back, uh, we need to take your thoughts on this subject. And also, uh, well, he, he gets into the article. He says that basically translators don't know what the words, the ancient words mean. They just had to guess. They couldn't really translate. They just sort of had to pick words and make it up as they went. And just put their bias in, and, and we just can't yeah. trust what they did. So let's talk about the translation. We'll here talk about that when we get back. Don't go anywhere. We'll get this week's virtual Bible study, and we'll go after this. Stay tuned. You won't want to miss what we talk about next. The discussion continues right after these important messages. This is Greg Gwynn with this week's Bullet Point. Have you heard of the International Flat Earth Society? There really is such a group, and they believe that the Earth is flat, even though there are mountains of evidence to the contrary. No pun intended. We would say that this is simply crazy. Some suggest that believing in God and the Bible is just like believing in a flat earth. They imply that those who are believers ignore reason and logic and blindly follow their faith without any supporting evidence. But the truth is that believers understand the need for evidence and, in fact, the Bible emphasizes essential evidence. When the disciples of John came to Jesus asking, Art thou he that should come, or do we seek another? He did not say yes or no, but pointed them to the evidence that would provide the answer. He said, show John again those things which you do see and hear. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up. That's Matthew 11, verses 3 through 5. The inspired apostles were skilled at presenting the evidence that would convince their hearers that Jesus was the Son of God. For instance, numerous times the apostle Paul is described as, quote, reasoning with his students about the identity of Jesus. Do you know what you believe and why you believe it? Can you explain your faith to others? Are you ready to give an answer always to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you? 1 Peter 3, verse 15. All of us should place an emphasis on careful study and preparation in the matter of evidences. Our own faith will be strengthened and our ability to teach others will be improved. That's this week's bullet point. Think about it. I am Nestor Sanchez from Arica, Chile in South America. And I love to listen to the virtual Bible study. And this moment, I invite you to participate in this program, too. A streaming Bible study. Why didn't I think of that? Now back to the guys. Back on the program tonight, remind you this program is brought to you by the College U Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. Find out more about us by visiting our website, thevirtualbiblestudy.com. Also, podcast sermons that have been presented to the College U Church of Christ recently at our website, thevirtualbiblestudy.com. And if you have... As well, we thank you, Chris, for heads up on this article tonight. If you've got a suggestion for a future edition of the Virtual Bible Study, contact us at any time, questions at collegeview.com. And it's the 1st of January, 2015. So if you haven't downloaded it yet, go get that Bible reading calendar on our website. You can download the PDF there and get started on it tonight. And you should, because today was the first day of those readings. So you can get on there. If you want a hard copy... Send us your snail mail. We'll mail it to you. But you, before you, until you get it, you can look on the website and see what your assignments are. Britt, for Britt, uh, Britt, a member of the church, he was here earlier before the program. He was reading his January one Bible reading when the new year rolled over last night. How about that? So there you go. He's really on the ball. Get a head start there. We had some we had some emails, Jacob, about this idea of what facts should all Christians be able to explain about the manuscript evidence mm-hmm. for the Bible. Mm-hmm. Randy in Michigan said, uh, the vast majority of the manuscripts of the New Testament agree with one another almost letter for letter. It has been estimated that these comprise 95 to 96 percent of the manuscripts extant. This text is, with minor variation, the text underlying the King James Version of the New Testament known as the Received Text or the Textus Receptus. Uh, of this, 
Westcott and Hort reluctantly admit a text virtually identical with the prevalent Greek text of the Middle Ages. The Texas Receptus was used by various ones uh, and so forth. So Randy simply is emphasizing what we're saying. We have a very reliable copy. Uh, We know what the original manuscripts or original text said. And Kevin in uh, Hot Springs, Arkansas. Thank you, Kevin, for your response. He uh, posts uh, uh, some commentary here in, re- in response to the article. He says, there's more evidence for the Bible's authenticity than for any literature of antiquity. That's along the lines of what you were mentioning in that yeah. article you referenced. Textual analysis begins with historical investigation, beginning with the latest documents and working backward. As evidence develops, the data is evaluated against other sources. The record is then checked for consistency of information, and the claims are analyzed as if it were a legal case, looking for credible testimony with cross-examination. There's an enormous amount of evidence for the authenticity of biblical manuscripts. One other statement from those things that, that Kevin sent in. Thanks, Kevin. He says, The Old Testament has been more accurately transmitted to us than any other ancient writing of comparable age. The textual evidence is greater for both the Old Testament and New Testament than for any other historically reliable ancient document. The ancient scribes were very meticulous. There were only, uh, he mentioned just a few variant readings by A.D. 500. All right. And uh, Aaron in uh, Louisiana says, not, I don't think he comes, Well, he says, uh, most of what this author writes is uninformed drivel about what the Bible really says, and his comments about translation or the canon show that he only knows a few basic things about the subjects. I think that's right. Yeah. I think he is really uninformed. Uh, Aaron goes on and adds, though, but the reason this article will resonate with so many people is that we can all see around us plenty of examples of people who say they honor the Bible but don't know much about what it says beyond a few stock phrases. Biblical illiteracy and hypocrisy make us all look bad because examples of bad behavior and bad scholarship are so common among religious people that it's hard to tell the wheat from the chaff among those who claim to be religious. And many of the people who read this article will be too lazy to actually go read the parts of the Bible that are quoted to see whether those things are so. So while this article's conclusions are wrong, a lot of the supporting evidence about ignorance of the Bible is on target. It's easy to ignore the Bible if those who claim to follow it are not ex- good examples of how people ought to live in submission to God. Yeah. Thank yeah. you, Aaron, for that. And that and really a, goes to a, our last question. And that's admonition for us uh, all. But the, but the, the yes. any inconsistency on the part of Christians does not disprove the Bible. It doesn't. And so but we'll, it, we'll but talk a little bit more it, about yeah, that. We'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, yeah. Uh, Brendan says, I would start with manuscripts. He says, the Iliad and the Odyssey, 643 manuscripts, the oldest one, 400 B.C., 500 years after when we think it was the, the Iliad, Iliad and the Odyssey were written. So now, this, this is the information I think is just really nails this down. So get this. Homer wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey. There are 643 manuscripts, and the oldest one is dates to 500 years after the original was written. Yikes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Works of Plato, seven manuscripts, oldest one, 3rd century B.C. Now compare that to the New Testament. The New Testament, 5,800 manuscripts, oldest ones written within 30 or 40, possibly even 50, as, much, as close as 15 years after Christ's death, thousands mm. more in Latin, Syriac, uh, Syriac Slavic, Gothic, Ethiopic, Coptic and Armenian. Mm. So uh, get, get that. We, we've got uh, ten times more manuscripts of the New Testament than we have of Homer's Iliad and Odyssey, and they date closer to the original. No one doubts that we have the accurate uh, rendition of the Iliad and the Odyssey, but for some reason they want to doubt the Bible. All right. Uh, well, uh Chris in the UK says, so if the historical basis for Christianity is flawed with its abundance and quality of manuscript basis, then where does that put the Julius Caesar or the other Caesars of Grecian history? So, yeah, Chris is saying we don't require the same. We've got more evidence for Christianity and the New Testament than we do of these other historical documents. Yeah. Uh, 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 he, He references some copyists were professionals. Um, uh, there's a little bit more there than we can include, but all of this to the point. We've got an abundance of manuscript evidence. So let's right. go. To, let's go to our next question. We're not going to get this Jim, done. Jim says critics complain if the texts agree, then they are copied from one another, and therefore they were not inspired. If they disagree, then it proves the work is of faulty men, and therefore is not inspired. And so, uh, 
Uh, they, there's you, the, those who want to try and disprove the Bible will look for any excuse that they can find. Thank you for that, Jim, uh, in the chat room. All, All right, right, next question. We All talk right. about the uh, fact Qu- that translators quickly about didn't know what they were doing. The translators didn't know what they were doing, and they, and they were just basically taking guesses. Uh, yeah. because they didn't know the language, and they just had to guess at what it meant. Mm-hmm. And, again, I think that's really a, uh, a, a an uninformed statement about the scholarship of those who translated the Bible. They, uh, First of all, the, he acts like the fact that Koine Greek is a dead language is a problem. Yeah. It's actually a benefit right. to the transmission of the text because, you know, a living language, words change meanings. Right. We all are familiar with English words that in our lifetimes have changed meanings dramatically. Right. So if you've got a living language, a language that people are still currently using, then you've got a problem that, that may affect the understanding of the text. But if you've got a language that's not in common use anymore, it's sort of frozen in time. Right. And so... Can we understand? Sure, we can understand. Because not only do we have the Bible that was written in that language, we have secular writings that were written in that language. We can see how words are used, not just in the Bible, but in in secular usage. We can see how the words were used, and that's what that's what the scholars, that's what these interpreters, these translators, times learning. Yeah, and by the way. The, the the good translations of the Bible. Now, there's some flawed translations of the Bible. There there are some translations like the Living Bible that are simply a paraphrase. One guy sat down and wrote out what he he, he took he took English translations of the Bible, put it in his own and words. put them in his own word. He didn't. It's not even a translation. It's just a paraphrase. Mm-hmm. But true translations were done by teams of scholars who were expert in the language and who worked in unison to come to a accurate meaning of what those words uh, uh, conveyed. And so it, it's not that they didn't know what they, they – a dead language that no one understood and they yeah. just had to guess. No, that, that's just simply this not true. This guy probably couldn't even spell koine. He probably had to use a, look a, use a dictionary to figure out how to spell it, and he's, he's, he's uh, criticizing these folks who spent their lives studying the language, just throwing up, a, as Chris said, a straw man – uh, to make a ridiculous argument. Yeah. Um, what do we got from, from some of our emailers, Jacob? Well, we do. Uh, let's see, Brendan in Oregon. Thank you, Brendan, for your comments tonight and your correspondence. He says, uh, it might be true for some, but we're always discovering new manuscripts and refining our translation as our knowledge increases in these matters. For example, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, they pushed our timetable for Isaiah back almost a 1,000 years, and the manuscripts uh, we had then compared to the manuscripts in the scrolls were 99% identical. And so Brendan, again, is referencing the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, and uh, Chris in the U.K., um, Koine, Chris says, was a business language, one that Alexander the Great made the official trading language when the Grecian Empire was in place. Also, there is the Septuagint to correlate with along. Uh, with many other documents, so translation was not the impossible task they make it out to be. Uh, and so uh, Chris is saying this language is well documented. Okay, very All good. Right. So again, I think our our Newsweek author is way off base and making a false claim when he says the translators had to guess at the meaning of words. All right, we got to go quickly. Let's go to this question about the canon of the scriptures. The word canon, when used that way, is not like a cannon that shoots a projectile. This is The word canon means a measure. It's like a ruler, and Mm -hmm. and you hold it up to something to to get a true measure of it. When we talk about the canon of Scripture, we're talking about a a system of of rules or standards that were uh, applied to determine if various books that are now included in our Bibles were truly inspired of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the argument is made, and I ask, how was the canon of Scripture established? Specifically, what part did Constantine and the various church councils have in making these determinations? Well, the fact of the matter is, the New Testament writers wrote by inspiration, and the product of their work was regarded by first century Christians as inspired before the ink dried on the page. Right. Uh, for instance... Uh, Paul said 
to the church of Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. Yeah. Uh, now, notice this. Uh, some people think that there was sort of a gradual evolution of thought about these books, mm-hmm. uh, that it took centuries before they became to be regarded as inspired. That's not the case. We know that these letters were being circulated among Christians in the first century. The right. New Testament references that. Colossians four sixteen. When this epistle is read among you, cause that it be also read in the church of the Laodiceans. First uh, Thessalonians 5, verse 27, I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren. Um, and it was, and, and the, and the things they wrote were, were considered to be scripture. Uh, Peter said about Paul, uh, he says in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 16, those who are unlearned and unstable rest Something, Paul wrote some things that are hard to be understood, which they, which are unlearned and unstable rest as they do also the other scriptures yeah. unto their own destruction. Peter referred to the things Paul said and said they are scripture. Yeah. And so there wasn't this long evolution of thought as to which books were worthy and which ones weren't. Yeah. They knew immediately and they began to quote from them. Clement of, of Rome in AD, uh, dating to AD 95 makes reference to Mar- uh, Matthew, Mark, Hebrews, Romans, 1 Timothy, Titus, 1 Peter, and Ephesians. Justin Martyr, uh, AD 100 to AD 165, repeatedly cited the four Gospels and mentions Acts and Revelation. Ignatius, AD 150, and Polycarp, AD 130, referred to various New Testament books. Uh, uh, Irenaeus mentions Paul's epistles over 200 times. Clement of Alexander, Tertullian. In other words, what do we do when we're preaching or teaching or writing an article? We quote right. Scripture. right. That's what these guys were doing. They were quoting the works of Paul. They were quoting the things that Peter wrote. They were quoting the things that uh, are contained in these books. Words, well before they, the Nicene Council. Long before the Nicene Council. Uh, when, when the first church council was held in 397, they basically just put their rubber stamp on what was already acknowledged to be mm-hmm. the inspired text. All right. We'll get your comments after a break. We'll get a break and we'll come back. We'll take your comments on the canon. We'll talk about some contradictions. He threw up some more straw men. There's all kinds of contradictions. The Bible just trips all over itself and can't be relied on. And then uh, we'll talk about some problems with Christians and how they live uh, according to what the Bible says. Does that disprove the Bible? Let us know your thoughts. Don't go anywhere. We'll continue right after this. Now you can listen to a podcast of a recent sermon every week. Find out more at collegeview.com. There's more of the virtual Bible study right after these important messages. I'm Greg Gwynn, a host of the Virtual Bible Study. Thanks for joining us for tonight's program. The Virtual Bible Study is presented weekly by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. Each week on the Virtual Bible Study, we simply engage in the study of God's Word in an effort to better understand it, better understand how God views us, and better understand what He wants from us in our lives. We're not studying any creeds. We're not studying any books written by men. We're just studying the Bible. And we're trying to study the Bible alone without any of our opinions or wisdom mixed in. We're only interested in what our Creator has revealed to to us in his word. We realize that we're fallible and cannot direct our own steps. As a result, what we think or feel doesn't really matter. All that matters is what God has said. So that's what the virtual Bible study is all about. It's pretty simple, isn't it? Thanks again for joining us tonight, and we we'll hope you'll make plans to join us every Thursday night for the virtual Bible study. We're tracking the trends on the virtual Bible study. Millions of children are currently being raised by single or divorced parents. Single parents account for 27% of the family households with children under 18. One in two children will live in a single-parent family at some point in childhood. One in three children is born to an unmarried mother. The number of single mothers increased from 3 million to 10 million between 1970 and 2000. All that information is via the U.S. Census Bureau. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4 says, And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Colossians 3, 17. Now, back to the program. Back on the program tonight, looking at this Newsweek article that claims the Bible, well, it's uh, very misunderstood and ought to be basically thrown away. The author is Kurt Eichenwald, 
and it's in the current edition of Newsweek magazine on newsstands as we speak. Uh, yes, uh, it needs to be taken off the newsstands. All right, we're going to have to hurry here. He mentions a bunch of contra- what he claims are contradictions in the Scripture. We don't have yeah. time to deal with them all. Yeah. I just want to re- I'll give you an example of the kind of thing that he mentions here, Jacob. He says, two Gospels, Matthew and Luke, tell the story of when Jesus was born, but in quite different ways. Contradictions abound. Mm. In creating the familiar Christmas tale, Christians took a little bit of one story, mixed it with a little bit of the other, and ignored all the contradictions in the two. Well, they did mix some, they did make some things up that are inaccurate. But it's not because the texts are... And then he says the stories in the four Gospels of Jesus' death and resurrection is different as well. He tries to go into some detail about that. He tries to say that Genesis 1 contradicts Genesis 2. Uh, There's there's a lot. uh, He mentions several other things. And I just asked the question, what about these supposed contradictions of the Bible? For instance, he mentions the, the accounts of Jesus' birth in Matthew and Luke. They're not identical. But that doesn't mean they contradict each other. In other words, if, if I told you today, Jacob, I went to Walmart today, and I told Jeff later that I that I was at uh, McDonald's. Yeah. I went to McDonald's today. Is that a contradiction? Oh. It's not necessarily a contradiction. No. In other words, I told you one thing. I told Jeff something else, but they supplement one another. The fact of the matter is I went to both Walmart and McDonald's today. Yeah. And so when I put the two statements together, you get a fuller picture of everything I did today. Unless I've got a bias and I just want to prove that you're some type of lunatic who doesn't know what's going on. And I say, he said one thing and to me and he said something else to Jeff. Therefore, there's a contradiction. If I've got a bias, as this man does, then I can, I'll can i try and frame those up to such a way that it yeah. looks like a, a contradiction. Yeah. Uh, let's look and see what some of our emailers said about these supposed contradictions. Yeah, Brendan in uh, Forest Grove, Oregon, says uh, this uh, one I'm still working on myself. I think I have a good answer on the Gospels. I would like more info on harmonizing them, though. I, but I do have one question. How does the Christian explain in Genesis chapter 7 when the account says that Noah entered the ark twice, verses 7 and 13, as well as the waters coming twice? I'd like to know. How do, also, how does the Christian explain the other contradictions mentioned in, in the article, such as David and Goliath? Chris in the UK uh, mentions, he, he, he says a little, gives, gives an example of a little test you can do, different people seeing different things from different perspectives. But basically what he's saying is the gospel, the gospel writers had different aims for writing and different vantage points, so highlight, they highlight different things. That's exactly, that's exactly right, Chris. Uh, it's, it's, it, they're not contradictory. They're actually supplemental. All right, now, Brendan asked a question about Genesis chapter 7, verses 7 and 13, where the author finds it mentioned twice that, the, that Noah and his family entered the ark and wants to make some type of contradiction out of it. In verse 7, so Noah and his sons and his wives and his sons' wives went into the ark because of the waters of the flood, in verse 7. And then verse 13 says, on the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, him, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. Uh, well, it's just a, uh, it's not a, it's not a, Two different events is just restating uh, with more detail there what has happened as Noah and his children uh, and his family enter the ark. And there's no contradiction. There's there. no contradiction. Yeah, that was one of the contradictions he yeah. claimed about yeah. the, the account <laughs> of the flood with Noah. Uh, Chris in UK deals quickly with all of the contradictions that he mentions. Uh, he, he says the Christmas uh, story has been contrived. Uh, he says... Uh, not everyone does genealogies like we do. The tomb argument is bad retelling. Uh, basically, he, he deals with each of those. We don't have time to deal with each of the contradictions he tried to point out other than to say that every one of those has been answered and none of them stands as a true contradiction. You know, in order for a contradiction to stand, Jacob, um, there can be no feasible explanation to resolve the, the supposed contradiction. But in order for the contradiction to fail, all you have to do is come up with one plausible explanation. And in all of the things that he referenced, the the difference in the stories of Jesus' birth, the difference in the stories of his death and burial and resurrection, all of those have plausible explanations, multiple plausible explanations, and therefore they don't stand as a legitimate contradiction. Yeah. Uh, he thinks he's the only one who's ever come up with these. Yeah, over a hundred years ever, ago, oh, a fellow by the name of John Haley wrote a book. It's still a standard reference book in lots of libraries, 
uh, alleged contradictions of the Bible. In it, he cites hundreds of supposed contradictions, shows that there's a, a plausible explanation for every one of them, and ends up proving that there's no sustainable contradiction in the scripture. All right. Jeff, you're in the chat room tonight. Jeff's behind the controls. We haven't talked to Jeff uh, yet tonight. Uh, Jeff, uh, you were mentioning in the chat room that uh, the, the gospel is written to different audiences. Exactly. Um, Luke was most likely written to a Gentile. It was uh, first four verses talk about it being written to Theopolis, and then he um, looked at all those things. Um, Luke's genealogy actually covers from Adam to um, to Christ's birth, while uh, Matthew's uh, starts it with Abraham and goes to uh, Jesus. So they're different. I thought, That's I right. That was very interesting too. That that shows maybe that there's something about. Yeah, and again, I think it shows his general lack of understanding of the subject that he's trying to write about. Yeah, but yeah. All, right. all right, real quickly, we're just all but out of time. The last thing that we ask is when Christians, even the majority of Christians, do things contrary to the Bible, does this reflect upon the accuracy of the Bible? Now, just to get a, a, a sense of that, uh, uh, he, he references... In August 2011, Texas Governor Rick Perry hosted a massive prayer rally in Houston at Reliant Stadium. And then he mentioned some others who do similar things, get big crowds together and pray. He says, this is one of the most incomprehensible, it is one of the most incomprehensible contradictions between the behavior of evangelicals and the explicit words of the Bible. Prayer, <laughs> prayer shows, he calls them. They're prayer shows. Uh, and there uh, is really no other word for these, are held every week. They are not... Uh, if they're not at sports arenas with Republican presidential hopefuls, they are on Sunday morning television shows at mega churches holding tens of thousands of the faithful. They raise their arms and sway, crying and pleading in prayer. But Jesus specifically preached against this at the Sermon on the Mount. Um, Jesus spoke of those who made large public displays of their own religiosity. In fact, performance prayer events closely mimic the depictions in early Christian texts of prayer services held by Pharisees and Sadducees two of the religious movements in Judea during Jesus' life. Uh, throughout the Gospels, Jesus condemns these groups with heated language. So, all right, so he doesn't like it when big groups get together to pray, and he says it's in contradiction to what Jesus said about making public displays of prayer in I've, the Sermon on the Mount. I've never been to one of these big prayer rallies, but uh, this this gentleman obviously doesn't understand what Jesus was getting at when he was saying pray in a closet he wasn't forbidding any kind of prayer in, in some place other than a closet he was using an example of those who are who are being hypocritical in their prayer doing it for the attention of others and he condemns that but he doesn't condemn praying where others might see it yeah well let's 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 say that texas governor rick perry did have bad motives in getting a big crowd together and then praying in front of them so what that doesn't disprove the Bible. Right. If it proves anything, it proves that there, people don't always <clears throat> accurately apply what the Bible teaches, but it makes no reflection at all upon the accuracy of the Bible. Yeah. And I think that's the key. And I, earlier you read uh, Aaron's uh, uh, email, in which, which he made that point, uh, that when, when we are not consistent and when we do a bad job of, of scholarship, then we hurt the cause. Sure. Yeah. People do that with the Bible. And it's the same with the church. If if you want to influence people for good, you've got to be living what you profess. Otherwise, they're going to look at you and say, oh, you're a member of the Church of Christ, and you don't live like you should, so therefore the Church of Christ must be in error in everything. And so if you're not living like you should, then you're doing great harm. Doesn't It doesn't mean the Bible's not accurate, but it does cause great harm to the influence you might have on others. Exactly. Um, in the uh, U.K., Chris says... Uh, does this prove that the Bible is not accurate? He says, no, it proves that people are imperfect uh, or the authenticity of their belief. He says, if you say the water in your pipes freeze and burst the pipes so no water comes out when you run the bath, do you doubt the ability of water to clean you or the pipe delivery system? And now on on washing milk or orange juice, no, you make the pipes right. So, the, so same with the Christian. You seek to point out the failing in him uh, so as to mend him. And Brendan in Forest Oregon says, it does, I say it does not inherently reflect upon the accuracy, but it does not help people uh, in their uh, perceptions of its accuracy. The author yeah. did get one thing right, he says. There is mass biblical illiteracy in this country. Yeah. We're out of time. Uh, 
uh, oh, in the chat room, Brendan asked, what's that book? What was it called? Is John Haley is the author, Alleged Discrepancies of the Bible. Okay. All right. We're out of time. I think it's an important thing to address. Uh, we, there's a lot more that can be said. I mean, volumes have been written. We just touched the hem of the garment tonight, yeah. Jacob. Uh, volumes have been written. This guy availed himself of none of that scholarship. Uh, it's just an attack piece. That's all it is. It's obviously an attack piece. But I do think that we as Christians need to be ready to make a defense, especially to the argument that we don't know what the original text said. It's, yeah. It was it was lost long ago, and we just have copies of copies of copies that have been corrupted through the centuries. Absolutely not true. Don't let anybody take that away from us. All right. Absolutely. Thank you for that uh discussion tonight and uh, we do need to be prepared because this kind of junk is going to be floating around on the internet and people who who have a bias who want to find some reason not to believe and not to submit their lives to god will look to this and they'll they won't question it they're going to question the bible they won't question junk like uh this newsweek article we need to be prepared to answer exactly all right thank you for your time tonight dad thanks thank you jeff for being here and helping us out with the controls thank you for joining us we've benefited from our study and discussion of god's word we hope you make plans to be back here this time next week for another edition of the virtual bible study and in the meantime we encourage you to put god first in your life study his inspired word of the bible and live by it every day you'll never regret it thanks for listening to the virtual bible study brought to you by the college view church of christ the college view church of christ meets at 1618 hampshire pike in columbia tennessee if you are in the columbia tennessee area we encourage you to worship with the college view church of christ on sunday mornings at 9 30 and on sunday evenings at six o'clock the college view church of christ also welcomes you to attend their wednesday night bible studies at seven o'clock if you have any questions about something that was said on tonight's broadcast or would like more information about the college View Church of Christ, please call 931-381-4567. That number again, 931-381-4567. Or for more information on the internet, visit collegeview.com. Be sure to tune into the virtual Bible study this time next Thursday for another informative study of God's Word.